If you will, join me in the book of 1 John chapter 4. Again, if you are visiting with us this morning for the first time, we are very happy to have you with us. Um, We are glad that you have decided to join us and to worship the Lord. My name is Nick. I am one of the pastors here at Ephesus Church, and it is our common practice to preach through books of the Bible verse by verse, and we find ourselves this morning in the book of 1 John chapter 4, and we will be looking at verses 17 through 21. The title of my sermon this morning is Perfected in Love. And the key words for our worshipers in training, our children, are love, perfected, and fear. And if you remember last week, we discussed that verses 13 through 21 are altogether an expansion or an explanation of the end of verse 12. John wrote in verse 12, If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. And we discussed the fact that we can have confidence before God, because God abides in us. As true believers, the Holy Spirit of God abides within us. So verses 13 through 16 were an explanation of the statement from John that God abides in us. And today we will be looking at the second part of that statement in verse 12, namely the truth that if we love one another, His love, God's love, is perfected in us. So let's read together 1 John chapter 4. We'll begin in verse 12 and read to verse 21. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in Him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as He is, so also are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because He first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. I see in these verses... 17 through 21, five truths about love. And we will look at each of these individually. Here they are in order. Number one will be perfect love is initiated by God. Number two, perfect love builds confidence. 
Number three, perfect love drives out fear. Number four, perfect love is rooted in truth. And number five, perfect love impacts others for their good. So let's take those each one at a time. Number one, perfect love is initiated by God. And let's look at this, which is really the hinge that sits in the middle of this section of these verses. So we're going to hit this verse, verse 19, and then we'll go back to 17 and work through the rest. So let's read that again together. Verse 19. We love because He first loved us. Back in verse 12, John wrote that the love of God is perfected, or the NIV translates it well, completed in us. He's not saying that God gives us a love that is perfect, but rather that God is developing our love, making our love more mature, making our love complete or whole within us. Indeed, there will be nothing about us that is perfect until we are glorified. But there is a work of perfecting going on within us through the power and work of God. He is maturing our love and making it more and more pure. The important thing to note about the love of God being perfected in us is as John says in verse 19, namely, that perfect love is initiated by God. It begins with God. We love. We love our neighbors, our friends, our family, our husbands, our wives, our enemies, God. We love because God first loved us. Our love is the result of God loving us. Remember back in verse 7, John exhorted us to love one another. But he doesn't just simply command of us to love one another. He tells us to love one another because love is from God. Now remember, John really only has a few goals throughout this entire letter. But the main overarching goal of all is that he is writing about assurance. Giving true believers confidence that they are true believers. So what he's saying essentially is, love one another because that love proves that you are of God. Love is from God. The only reason you love is because God first loved you. Therefore, you prove that you are of God by loving one another. So you see, our loving others does not result in God loving us. In other words, our love for one another is not a means to God's love for us. That's a deadly understanding. If that's how you understand God's love, you don't understand the Gospel. If you are seeking to love others so that God will love you, You don't understand the Gospel. And you don't understand what John is saying here. We love others because God first loved us. It wasn't something we earned. It wasn't something... If we truly understand the human heart, if we truly understand the depravity of man, it wasn't something we even wanted. 
the love of God? Friends, the Bible tells us we were enemies of God. We didn't want the love of God. And that's the beauty of the Gospel. While we were yet sinners, while we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. So it's not presumptuous to say that we love God and God loves us. We know that God loves us if we love God. Because the Bible tells us plainly that our love is grounded in God's initiative. Friends, have you laid hold of this truth that God first loved you? As I read through 1 John and consider all that John has reminded and assured us of in our faith, this truth is the most confidence-building, faith-securing, perseverance-motivating truth in the entire book. Namely, that God first loved me. So we can ask ourselves, do you love others? Do you love your neighbors? Do you love the lost? If the answer is yes, what more assurance of your faith do you need? God loves you and is perfecting His love in you. And your love for one another is proof. And so as we look at this passage, we must first remember that our love is rooted in the truth that God first loved us. It was initiated by God and it is now being perfected because of God, because of the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of His people. So let's look back at verse 17. And my second point is that perfect love builds confidence. Let's read that verse together again. Verse 17, By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as He is, so also are we in the world. This is another reoccurring theme in the book of 1 John. Remember back in chapter 2, verse 28, it says, And now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. When we're abiding in Christ, there's nothing to hide. There is nothing to fear. We can stand before Christ at His second coming with confidence. We will run to meet Him. We will run to stand before Him. We won't run to hide. We have nothing to fear. Likewise, chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. When our hearts are fixed on abiding in God, we have confidence in our prayers. We are coming before God with confidence and laying hold of all that we request in the name of Jesus because we have the assurance of knowing that God has loved us and given us love from Him 
and for others. Thus providing us with the confidence as we approach Him. And you know, brethren, the more we pray, the more confident we become. Is it not that way in the relationships we have with one another? When you first meet a person, you have a little small talk. You talk about life, maybe. Where are you from? What do you do? Married? Have kids? Sure is hot today. But in time, right, those relationships, they build confidence. You begin to know more of their life. You get beyond the small talk more quickly. You get to the things that you know about one another. How's that project going that you've been working on at work? How'd your conversation go with your son's teacher at the school about his grades? Things are more specific. You're more knowledgeable. Even to the more direct things like, brother, I need to let you know the way you just handled that situation was sinful. And you need to repent and be reconciled. You see, we build confidence in our relationships the more we know a person. Likewise, in our relationship with God, if we're not praying, we're not confident. We stick to the small talk. That's often evident when you hear the prayers of people sometimes. Not always. I'm not saying this to cast judgment. But consider, how confident are you before God in your prayer life? Are you simply restating things that you've heard? Little cliche Christian phrases that we say because we think God likes those more than a genuine pouring out of our hearts before Him? If you live a prayer-filled life, you will be confident before the Lord. And your prayers will reflect that confidence before the Lord. The more you pray to the Lord, the more confident you become before the Lord. Not flippant. Not buddy-like, confident. And now here in verse 17, John goes another step further. He has already expressed confidence at the return of Christ and in our prayers. And now he's addressing the negative in the positive. Namely that on the day of judgment, we will have confidence before God. Perfect love assures us that we will have perfect love because God has worked that within us. Perfect love assures us that we will have hope at the second coming of Christ and on the day of judgment. And I really hope that we take and understand and look seriously at the day of judgment. Quite honestly, as I say that, day of judgment, it's really easy for us to forget about from day to day, isn't it? As we go on with our lives, we're so concerned about meeting deadlines, paying bills, making it on time to our appointments, and on and on and on. And we give very little thought to the fact 
that the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God is coming. We ought to take that very seriously. Because there is a judgment and a torment of hell awaiting those who are not in Christ. And that should be motivating us to be busy about the work of the Gospel. When you sit and ponder the wrath and judgment of God, I am certain that you will weep when you consider many of our frivolous pursuits in life. The Apostle James reminds us that this life is a vapor. It's a mist. And in that, the Lord Jesus has warned us so clearly that it is appointed unto man once to die, and then judgment. It's a mist. And then you die, and then judgment. So some would consider this and say, well, then I need to live up to it now. I need to live it up and get and have and enjoy and partake and experience. Don't you think that way? Don't let that motivate you to live for yourself. If you are a child of God, this should be an incredible motivation that calls you to live for others, to love others, and be willing to give your life for others because you know of the horrors of hell. Jesus described hell as a place where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Fire in complete darkness, everlastingly consuming an inconsumable body. A place where Jesus has also described there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping and grinding teeth together because of the torment, because of the anguish that all they can do is grit and bear down and grind. The divine wrath of God will do more than snuff out the temporal, earthly things that we so consume ourselves with. It will snuff out any opportunity for eternal life with Christ and bring misery to unbelievers that is far worse than anything you can ever imagine enduring in this life. And you know what, brothers and sisters? That is what we all deserve. We've lied. We've cheated. We've stolen. We've lusted. We've fornicated. We've coveted. We've hated. We have blasphemed the name of God. We've created idols and we bow down to them every day of our lives. We all deserve to weep and gnash our teeth for eternity. But you see, knowing that you deserve that, and knowing that God has first loved you, and as a result, you love God and you love others, the love that is being perfected in you is a love that gives great confidence on the day of judgment. Because you know what Christ has rescued you from. 
you know that absolutely stunning truth that you hated God. He called you out of darkness into the light, opened your eyes, and suddenly you were transformed to love God and sought to live for His glory. Friends, if you are here today and you have not been transformed by the power of the Gospel, if you have not repented of your sins and believed in Jesus Christ for the salvation of your soul, I urge you to consider what I'm saying this morning. Christ will return. And in His return, He will usher in a day of judgment when Christians and non-Christians will no longer dwell together. The wheat will be separated from the chaff. And the chaff will be forever burned. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6-10 through 10 says, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the Gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in the saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is why Jesus has sent us into all the world to preach the Gospel. So I hope, I pray, that we all take the day of judgment as seriously as the Apostle John did. I hope that when you consider the thought of having a disease or enduring some type of suffering, that you will let that legitimate concern overflow into taking the tragedy of eternal divine judgment upon those who will never believe into consideration. I hope that when you feel an impulse to do what you can to keep people from getting cancer or from having a disease or getting hurt in some way, that your heart will be quickly fixed on longing for the eternal salvation of your entire neighborhood, of the millions of unreached people groups in this world. So how will we have confidence? How will we have confidence on the day of judgment? Because we have been redeemed by the power of Jesus. Look at the second part of verse 17. Because as He is, so also are we in this world. In other words, we are not like the world in that we do not have fear. We do not have to fear the return of Christ. We do not have to fear the day of judgment. We can have confidence because we have been made like God in His grace. Ephesians 1, 5-10 reminds us, In love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace 
with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on the earth. We have confidence on the day of judgment because we have been made complete in Jesus Christ. Think of how wrecked we are without Jesus. Think of the fear of dying we have without Jesus. Uncertain of what's to come. Unsure of what to expect. But in Christ we have wholeness. While the world gropes to find meaning and confidence and assurance and hope, we know that it is only found in Jesus Christ. And we can stand boldly before God on the day of judgment because God first loved us and is now perfecting that love in us, reminding us and giving us greater understanding that Christ has accomplished much on our behalf. So you must ask yourself, can I? Can I stand boldly on the judgment day? The Scottish Psalter of 1615 has an excellent psalm in it. And it captures this well. I want to read it to you. You have to pay close attention. It's from 1615. It takes some active listening to get it. I hope you do. It's beautiful. A mind at perfect peace with God. Oh, what a word is this. A sinner reconciled through blood. This, this indeed is peace. By nature and by practice far, how very far from God. Yet now by grace brought nigh to Him, brought through faith in Jesus' blood. So nigh, so very nigh to God, I cannot nearer be. For in the person of His Son, I am as near as He. So dear, so very dear to God, more dear I cannot be. The love wherewith He loves the Son, such is His love to me. Why should I ever anxious be since such a God is mine? He watches o'er me night and day and tells me mine is thine. This is beautiful. This is redemption. This is what gives us great confidence in the day of judgment. We have been covered in the righteousness of Christ. And as a result, we can stand before God with confidence. Jesus is God's beloved Son in whom He is well pleased. And so are we. We can share His confidence because when we get to the final judgment, we are children of God. And we will be made fully and finally perfect like Jesus Christ. Amen. Number three, perfect love drives out fear. Verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. 
And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Now, I hope you understand that when John talks about perfect love, he's not talking about us being able to love perfectly. A person perfected in love is not a person who loves flawlessly. He is a person who loves in deed and in truth. Not just in empty words and pats on the back. Perfect love has to do with completion, not flawlessness. Perfect love is love that comes to full fruition. It goes beyond desire and it is completed. It is perfected indeed. So this first part of verse 18 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment. In other words, the reason there is no fear in love is that there is no punishment for being a loving person, for doing loving things, for loving others. When you love by doing real, practical deeds, your conscience doesn't grieve you. You don't see warning symbols that alert you to punishment that awaits you for loving someone. No, fear is what you feel when you've done something that ought to be punished, right? We've all felt that, haven't we? You see a cop in the median, his little radar gun pointed at you, you're about 20 miles per hour of the speed limit. What's that feeling that overcomes us? It's fear. But love, love is never threatened with punishment. There is no fear in love. In fact, when you love one another with perfect love, it drives out fear. The way to boldness and confidence and fearlessness is to walk in love. Not just to say you love and to claim to love, but to show you love and to do in love. Love is perfected not when it is sinlessly flawless, but when it passes from mere words to actions. So you might ask, should we not fear God? The Bible certainly does teach us to fear God, but that's not what John is writing of here. When we are commanded to fear God as we should, it is referring to us having a reverence for God. That we not take God and the things of God flippantly. That we not get cutesy with God, seeking to make jokes about God or to lighten up when it comes to the things of God. We most certainly want to fear God in that we want to reverence God. We know God to be a holy and righteous God. Therefore, we must not be flippant about how we talk about God or how we approach God. Indeed, the Apostle Paul reminds us that we are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. To reverence and honor God. But this does not mean that we should fear the judgment of God. John Stott said, the fear that God drives out is a fear of what God might do to us. We cannot approach God in love and run in fear simultaneously. 
Do not live with the notion that God didn't mean what He said when He told us that He would forgive and forget our sins. Do not live with the fear that we aren't forgiven by God through the blood of Jesus. If we live in fear, we will be paralyzed and useless. Or we will become very works-based in our pursuit of salvation. In 1857, when the great Scottish medical missionary, David Livingston, was home from Africa, he was giving a challenge to the students at the University of Cambridge. And he tried to convince them that a life of love in the service of others is not ultimate sacrifice. In doing so, he gave a beautiful illustration of this passage, namely verses 17 and 18. He said, Is it a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward in healthful activity? The consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and a bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter? Notice the sequence of his thought. He says that his labors of love on behalf of the lost have been healthful activity. He has the consciousness of doing good. This is love perfected. Love in deed and in truth. Love reaching its goal. Love being completed in action. And what was that result for David Livingston? Peace of mind and a bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter. Or to use the words of John, confidence for the day of judgment and a mind without fear. Friends, one of the main reasons so many Christians have little confidence in their relationship with God and very little boldness in their interaction with men is that their lives are not devoted in love to the salvation of the lost and the glory of God. Instead, the devotion is to providing earthly security and comfort to themselves and their families. When we try to say that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and yet we do not devote our lives to the eternal good of others, there is a deep contradiction that eats away at our souls and it eliminates our confidence and leaves us feeling weak. John wants us to discover the secret of a life like David Livingston, that a life poured out in labors of love for the eternal good of other people yields a sure confidence in Christ and gives us a bright hope and a glorious destiny hereafter. Do you believe that God loves with everlasting love? Do you sing with confidence, My sin, oh, the bliss of that glorious day. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Do you have a secure standing in Jesus Christ? Are you confident that you will not be ashamed before Him at His coming? Not because of anything you've done, 
but because God first loved you. And because of the work that Jesus accomplished on your behalf on the cross. God does not desire that His people live in tyranny, but in love. Number four, perfect love is established in the truth. Verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And verses 20 and 21 are very similar. Verse 20 is the negative way to say it, and verse 21 is the positive. These are real quick and then we'll be done. Love establishes and authenticates our Christian testimony. If perfect love casts out fear, it also casts out hatred. There is only one way to know whether your claim to love God is self-deception or not. Namely, in the way you relate to people you can see. If you don't love your brother whom you can see, then there is open evidence that you can't be telling the truth when you talk about the invisible workings of your heart toward an invisible God. John Stott wrote, it's obviously easier to love a visible man than an invisible God. And if we fail at the easier task, it is absurd to claim success in the harder. Every claim to love God is a complete and total delusion if it is not accompanied by a radical commitment to love our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. To say that you love God while you hate your brother is a total delusion. Why? Because, number five, we'll look at perfect love impacts others for their good. Verse 21. And this commandment that we have from Him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Our love for God releases itself. It reveals itself in genuine love for our brother. We cannot help but love our brother. Again, why? Because God first loved us. If we are true believers, we cannot help but see our brother in need and love him and serve him. Because we are filled with the love of God and that love overflows in sacrificially giving ourselves to others in love to meet the need of others for their good. Friends, this is where the reality of all of this sets in. Loving others, giving our lives to others is where we show that we love God because He first loved us our hearts being so overwhelmed with love that it is exploding into the lives of other people. And so there's a lot of questions we perhaps need to consider. What about the fact that we are so prone to be so critical of our brothers and sisters? 
What about the fact that we are so quick to jump to negative conclusions about those who love Jesus? What about the fact that we are so slow to bear their burdens? We're so unwilling to walk in their shoes. What about the fact that we can magnify their faults but get angry when they mention ours? What about the gap between our profession of faith and our practice of faith? Friends, when the wheels are falling off and we have a critical negative spirit in our hearts, when we can see a speck in our brother's eye six miles away, but we can't see a log truck sticking out of our eye right beside our nose 50 feet long in front of us, We need to get on our knees and beg that God would instill a love within us. We must plead for God that He would make us more loving. That He would give us greater desire to love and to show and proclaim the love of God to our brothers and sisters and to the nations. As long as we live with a profession on our lips that does not match the action of our lives, we render ourselves impoverished in the purposes of God. And we leave our non-Christian neighbors saying, I don't see any reason to believe in His Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we must love one another. It is the essence of proof that we truly love God. Give your lives to one another. Serve one another. Weep with one another. Rejoice with one another. Love God together because God first loved us and is perfecting His love within us that we will impact the lives of others and that we will not be fearful on the day of judgment but confident before God because we live in the righteousness and blood of Christ Jesus, our Savior. Let's pray together. Father, we ask with confidence because of Christ that You, O Lord, would work within us to be a loving people. That You would perfect Your love within us that You would give us greater desires to show that we love You by loving one another, by loving our neighbors, by loving the nations, by loving our enemies. Help us, Lord, to love as Christ has loved. Help us to love in a way that gives us great confidence that as the day of judgment approaches, that we can stand before the Father with great confidence and assurance and say to Him, I am Yours. And He will say to us, Indeed, You are Mine. Give us that confidence, O Lord. Give us that joy. Give us that satisfaction in knowing that we love others because You have first loved us. Oh God, fill us with the grace of love that we may love more and more for Your glory 
that You would be made known. That others would see the love of God in Your people and that we would do good works. That they would see our good works and glorify the Father who is in heaven. Lord, help us to be those people. Help us to be convicted to love and serve with everlasting love because we know eternal judgment awaits. And were it not for the sovereign electing grace of God, we too would face the day of judgment with fear. Help us, Lord, to be compelled to love others because of Your love for us. And in that we say, O Lord, we love You. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.